In human culture, sex categories get simplified to either male or female. But nature presents us with sex anatomy spectrums. Labias, gonads, penises, breasts, clitorises, scrotums. LGBTQIA, or I-LGBTQA. Well, the I stands for intersex. What the fuckery is intersex? Well, we're about to find out. I'm Nadege August, your host. If this is your first time, welcome, and here's what you can expect. What the Fuckery is a podcast about the things we hear about but don't know enough about. A series of conversations dedicated to hearing firsthand from the very people whose lifestyle, truths, or concepts we struggle with understanding. The very things we should know about but are afraid to discuss. Now, our subjects and topics may or may not be mainstream, but our guests and sometimes experts are in it, living their truth whether we accept them or not. And if in that process we manage to bring clarity to you, dear listener, then thank you for being curious, open, and willing. Our guest today is Seven Graham. He is intersex. They. They uh-huh. are intersex, and he's jumping in, and I love it. Great name, by the way. There's a story behind Seven. It reminds me of a Prince song, and I will die if you happen to say that's what inspired you. Anyway, one of Seven's many avocations is that of being one of the foremost European addiction counselors. Seven is also an entertainer, actor, right? Producer, mm-hmm. writer. Yes, explains his presence here in Los Angeles. There. <laughs> their presence here in Los Angeles. This is good. This is going to be a masterclass in pronouns because I know they annoy everybody out there or a lot of people are struggling with the pronouns. So we're going to we can we can work through it in this podcast today. And as you can hear, he is they are generous enough to educate me and you hopefully on what being an intersex is. And for this episode, he they, oh goodness, this is a game. She, they, what do we do? What do we do? It's ingrained. It's ingrained. Um, Seven will join us again during our healing modality segments. But for today, Seven is going to unpack and educate me and you on intersex. I made the mistake of saying intersexuality mm. before, and you corrected me. I just put a line through that in your script. Because it is not? Um, it's, mm, I used it actually in the first article I wrote about being intersex. I came out in the United Kingdom. I'm from England, as you can probably hear, although I'm half Scottish as well. The Scottish ancestors, better give them a mention. Um, but yeah, I came out in, in the mainstream in 2006 with an article called The Secret of My Sex. Um, and I actually used the word intersexual in that because... I knew as little about intersex as everybody else does. You know, um, when I found out that I'm intersex, I was actually uh, 24, 25 years old uh, in 1994. I hadn't known that, um, even though I was diagnosed when I was uh, eight. Um, what is intersex? Okay, 
I'm going to give you a very brief sketch of an answer. I encourage everybody who finds today's podcast interesting to please Google intersex, spelled I-N-T-E-R-S-E-X, um, because it's actually really complicated. And I think this is one of the reasons why um, the mainstream media has, has not engaged with this very much yet, because it is a complicated thing from a scientific point of view. As you rightly point out, we're told that there's binary sexing of humans, male and female. The reality is it's actually a rainbow spectrum male and female being the sort of black and white at either side as it were and then the rainbow of colors in the middle so intersex people may know the old word which is hermaphrodite I personally really like the word hermaphrodite and, you know, with the history going back to ancient Greece, hermaphroditus and hermaphrodite and um, and all of that mythology. Biologically, though, uh, that's not correct. Um, you don't get somebody who is an exact mixture of half male, half female. But that's what it alludes to. It's some, it is possible. It's, it's somebody, well, somebody who is a mixture rather than just being one or the other is somewhere on that spectrum between them. I have a particular intersex condition called androgen insensitivity syndrome, AIS. It's one in 30,000 births. Um, but the stat for actual all live births is one in 2,000. About one in 2,000 babies are born intersex. As far as we know, some people may go their whole life without knowing they're intersex because they haven't had all of their body kind of looked at to see if there's any tissue or, or, or organs or anything from the opposite sex. Some intersex conditions are infertile. Some aren't. Um, some you can see at birth and some you can't. And how did it come about? You said you were eight years old when they found you were diagnosed as being yes. intersex. So my particular story, and this is just my story, which again is why I say, please, if you're interested in this subject, if you're interested in science and how amazing the human body is, please Google this. But my condition, AIS. So I um, looked like a girl baby when I was born. It says female on my birth certificate. Um, my clitoris was slightly on the big side. Um, but within the normal range and doctors do have a normal range of what they accept a Good clitoris grief. can be and they also have a, have a, a scale for what they accept a penis to be as well uh, and they have a rule about if a penis is below a certain size whether that's okay or not and we'll, we'll go there in more depth later on perhaps um, but yes I looked female when I got to about eight, year old, eight years old and this is where it gets a little bit messy because I was getting some lower abdominal pain how much of that is true, I don't know, because I was kind of, um, my, my, my family uh, when I was growing up was quite a complicated one, shall we say. And um, there was a lot going on in my family. And um, I, I kind of did various things or manifested various things to, to get some attention or to show that I, I was struggling at home. Uh, so whether I was getting much pain or not, I don't know. But anyway, my mother was seeing a gynecologist. Um, the gynecologist said, bring, bring Sarah in, as I was then. And he did what I now know was a, um, a mouth swab to check my chromosome. Levels? No, to check my chromosomes, actually. And he gave me an, a, an examination. Um, very quickly, he referred me to the gynecologist who trained him, who was a gentleman called Sir John Professor Dewhurst. He was a sir knighted by the Queen. He was, uh, in his life, the world eminent gynecologist uh, working out of uh, Chelsea Hospital for Women in London. His book, Dewhurst, is still the Bible on gynecology and obstetrics. 
metrics that anybody who's training in that will, will have um, seen as the manual. It's edited by somebody else now because he died a few years ago. Um, but I got sent up to see him. He was basically God in a white coat. You know, some doctors really do have a God complex. Well, he was he was a sweet and humble man, a very religious man, but he definitely exuded the power of God in a white coat. Uh, he always had an army of medical students from around the world with him. You following know, and following, worshipping. Following and worshipping. Um, so from the first time I saw him, it was completely normal for me to see him and all of these doctors from all over the world. Um, so it was kind of powerful, overwhelming experience uh, in some ways. Um, anyway, he, he obviously went along with the, the doctor who'd seen me's diagnosis. And this is when the lies began. Because he said to my parents, you have a very special little girl. Um, she has an incredibly rare condition. And um, unfortunately, she has ovaries that are going to become cancerous. So we need to whip them out. We need to whip them out as quickly as possible is what he said. And so I can't remember how long it was, but just a few weeks later, I was back in the hospital and um, they took out my ovaries, as I was told then. Now I was at eight years old. At eight years old, yeah. And they t- and, and that was a very, very damaging story. And it was a story. It wasn't the truth. It was damaging for a number of reasons. First of all, obviously, if you tell any parent and any child that they have a condition that means they will get cancer as a teenager and will die. Yeah, you can't and, fault your parents. Yeah, and, and also said, you're very lucky we picked this up because people who get have this usually do die in their teenage years. So it was very much a kind of, I've saved you from your, your death as a teenager kind of story. Um, that kind of set my life on a path where I always felt like the grim reaper was following me that I should have died as a teenager and that really fed into my addiction which is another strand of my story that we probably will go into but so from an eight, eight years old I kind of lost my innocence and lost the kind of levity of childhood because I thought I should have died and I had to go and have this operation any surgery on a child's genitals is akin to rape trauma uh, you know as an addiction therapist and the qualified in the UK as a person who's trained a lot in trauma and done a lot of therapy myself in terms of nine months residential rehab, uh, three months of trauma rehab at the world's best trauma rehab. Um, you know, I know very well that uh, any surgery on a child's genitals or in that area is like rape trauma. Um, and so he removed this tissue from me. I found out when I was 24, in 1994, 25, that um, it was actually testes that he removed from me and not ovaries. So he lied? Mm-hmm. He lied. And not only did he lie that the testes that I was born with internally would have stayed internal. Um, they would have produced hormones naturally. The chance of them becoming cancerous is actually less than the chance of a teenage girl's breasts becoming cancerous. So it would be like saying to all parents when their daughter becomes a teenager, oh, we're going to take out your child's breasts now because one day they might become cancerous. It's that line of reasoning. And aside from the fact the surgery was very traumatic and lots of stuff went on in the hospital that was deeply unsettling, um, aside from the fact that that was very traumatic, um, it also meant I was put on artificial hormones from the age of 12. Uh, There are attendant risks for anybody taking HRT long term. They put me on estrogen. Um, That came and bit me on the ass in my late 40s when I moved to America because my body started rejecting testosterone. My, sorry, my body started rejecting estrogen. Um, and uh, so I was heading for a wheelchair. Um, and that's another part of my story, which I, I can talk. Can you tell I can talk? Uh, yes, I can tell. <laughs> I, I hope that you've got room on your podcast because I'm going to fill your oh, airways. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. Wow. So how long were you in the hospital for? Do you remember? Yes, I do. It was about five days. 
Um, and again, I don't know why that was particularly because it was a relatively straightforward operation. They they kept me in the hospital um, basically from the Monday to the Friday. Every day they gave me blood tests. I um, found blood tests very traumatic. And so um, I found them very scary. And so one day I tried to run away from the hospital and they caught me in the stairwell. And literally two nurses dragged me into this room and held me down to take the blood. So that was pretty awful. They gave me an enema the night before my surgery, which was like being anally raped. And that happened in front of my pe- in front of my mother um, by two nurses that I really liked, and um, so that was very traumatic. It felt uh, like betrayal, didn't? Yes, complete betrayal, and it really set set me up for not trusting adults. You know, a lot of intersex kids end up being sexually abused in their childhoods because our bodies are not our own. We have no sense of boundaries. We're used to adults looking at our bodies, poking and poking prying. and prodding, and saying that you know they've got to do this, and that we just have to kind of not listen to ourselves and our feelings, which is this is wrong and let adults do what they like so it's a, it's a bad thing um, and then especially to not tell my parents to the truth of my diagnosis my mother was a nurse and so the doctor lied to my parents as well so my mother when I found out the truth and told her was furious how old were you when you figured it all out how did you find out I didn't figure it out myself I was in a relationship with a woman a very nice woman that I was with for seven years and um, I told her bits and pieces of my story I on the whole didn't talk about my story I kind of kept it under wraps it was so traumatic and embarrassing Um, but I told her bits of my story and she spotted that there were kind of bits that didn't seem to make sense and just kind of um, pushed me to ask some more questions so when I finally did I changed doctors um, in the early 90s and when I got this new doctor I basically gave him this list of questions and he said to me look I'm really sorry um, I'm going to tell you some truths um, it, it was policy not to tell people like yourself this but um, you're already asking questions so I'm going to tell you and that so that was good he handled that well but then he said very matter-of-factly, in a very grand English way, oh yes, the ovaries that we removed from your body weren't ovaries, they were testicles, or gonads as we call them. Uh, And that was like a shame nuclear bomb going off in my head. A, because it was like, oh my God, what on earth happened? I was lied to and they lied to my parents. Uh, B, I had no understanding of what intersex is, never even heard of it before. Um, And then to also hear that, you know, I considered myself to be a woman at that point. um, And to hear that I'd had testes inside me instead of um, ovaries was just, I couldn't get my head around it. And it fueled, you know, I left the hospital and it really fueled my drink and drugs addiction and my work addiction um having said that as somebody who's been sober 17 years now and as somebody who's a trained addictions expert i also know that addiction will latch on to anything that happens to us any bit of trauma and also we can get an addiction without having trauma we can just kind of decide that it's too hot and go and drink you know so but as an addict it gave me a lot of reasons why i had to behave in the ways that i behaved yeah, you had to, a lot to numb, a yes. lot to avoid. Yeah, yes. yeah if you had my life and if you'd been through what I'd been through, you'd need to drink and take a lot of drugs too. Yeah, listen, you go through traffic. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't be making light of the situation. Well, there might be a correlation between the traffic in Los Angeles and the obsession with cannabis in this town. Right? Yeah. Uh, but I'm really excited about a future segment where we will focus on your work on addiction because okay. it is a rampant, and I'm sure you, you'll know here, mm, especially yes. in this town. It's it's common. It's, well, in this, town, in this town, it looks a certain way. And this town also has a huge addiction recovery uh, industry, which is great. Yes. Um, but I think America in general and the Western world is having a huge addiction, addiction problem and a growing addiction problem. Addiction can take 
many different forms and uh, it certainly is mm. doing pretty well. It's winning the war at the moment. Yes, it is. Uh, back to our subject at hand. Were you, did you develop menses? Did you have a menstrual t- cycle? So with all the estrogen that was being pumped into you, what was the point of any of it? Well, so here's the next thing, okay? So I started estrogen at 12. Um, 12 years old. 12 years old. I quite often would um, get really angry about having to take a pill every day. Uh, it was called Premarin. Uh, I now know it was made out of horse urine. Jesus. So that's pretty unpleasant. And for somebody like myself who's very into animal rights, the idea of putting a poor horse in a stall and taking its urine and turning it into pills and then giving it to humans is pretty yuck. Um, but yeah, so I quite often kind of rebel against taking these pills and pull them all out on the floor and grind them into the ground. Slightly dramatic, but yes. Um, but uh, the idea of that was to, uh, I now discuss, I now know that they took the um, testes out straight away because it actually stopped me growing as tall as I would have been. I would have been an ectomorph. I would have probably been sort of heading up towards the, uh, you know, 5'10s, 5'11s up there or, or even six foot. My dad was six foot you know, over six foot, so I could have been much taller. A lot of models actually have my particular uh, uh, intersex condition because another side effect, aside from being the perfect frame for being a model, is that we also uh, have very good skin um, and age slowly. Those are two other weird quirks of being AAS that are very intriguing to science because if they can unlock those secrets, why do, why do these particular people age slowly and uh, have great skin? There's obviously a little bit of money to be made in that. Is your is your brain turning in that direction? <laughs> yeah, you? perhaps I should have studied science. Dash, I missed my opportunity. The horse pills be damned. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they gave me the hormones. They're basically for breast development um, uh, to stop me. Um, basically, if I don't if I don't take some hormones, like I'm on testosterone now, but if I don't take either estrogen or testosterone, um, my joints very quickly start kind of freezing up, and I feel like the Tin Man, you know, mm-hmm. from the Wizard of Oz. And uh, so they gave gave them to me for my joints. Um, for my breast development. But when I was 14 years old, to get to your question, when I was 14 years old, I didn't develop periods. Nobody had told me I wasn't going to develop periods. I went to a gynecologist with my father because my mother, unfortunately, wasn't on the scene at this point. Um, So my father was in the waiting room. I go and see this gynecologist and he says to me, ah, yes, you're not going to get your period because you don't have a womb. Did nobody tell you that? No, they didn't. And then I also. Do you w- think they removed it, or you just no? I didn't wasn't born one. with one because you had test, you had gonads. Yeah, but I had a vagina. See, this is why this is why um, biology is interesting. I had a, you know, very nice lady vagina, uh, but didn't have a womb and didn't have um, ovaries. Um, so I and breasts. Uh, did you do- yeah, the breast came as we can see. The breast did very well. You, you're <laughs> fortunate. Just- People have paid <laughs> a lots lot of, money. of money to get I know, what you have right I know. now. I've got some trans trans women friends who are very jealous of my big. 38 double D. Oh my goodness. I know they have got bigger and bigger actually in the recent years. Would you say this is a result of the estrogen that you were taking? They, they, um, partly the estrogen, I think, um, partly just God's gift or goddess's gift. And partly they've got bigger since I've been on testosterone because Hmm. what they tell you about hormones isn't true either. Hormones are much more complicated than just binary. So where are you today? What's happening? Because you're taking testosterone, no more estrogen. Should I just tell you one more little part of that story? So so this this gynecologist, who was a bit of a pervy, do you have the word perv in America? Oh, we have pervs here. We have lots of them. He was a bit of a pervy old doctor. I could tell that he was enjoying having this kind of a conversation with me. So he he said, oh, you know, you don't have a womb. Oh, nobody told you. And then I said to him, um, and I also, I'm not growing pubic hair and all my friends are growing pubic hair now this is the 80s when 
girls still wanted pubic hair. You know, I know nobody has it these days, but back then we wanted it because it showed you were becoming a woman. Uh, and I do have issues with the whole pubic hair thing. Anyway, that's a whole other side issue we can get, go into or not. But anyway, so I wanted pubic hair. So he said to me, well, I can give you a merkin. I had no idea what a merkin is. What is a merkin? A merkin is a pubic hair wig. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I laugh about it now. He had a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. Was he serious? Yeah, he was serious. Oh. He was going to give me a merkin to oh, wear in the to shower. Slap on. To, wear, to slap on with whatever kind of glue they attach beards uh, with and uh, <laughs> go and have a shower with the girls. No. Well, that was helpful. Yeah, well, as you can imagine, I mean, I laugh about it now, but as a teenager, it's it was dramatic. mortifying. Yeah. And then my vagina was a little bit on the small side. And so um, he said to me, Oh, uh, we may have to perform vaginoplasty on you, um, but to give you an opening. To give you no, I had I had an opening, but my vagina was just not long, should we say? So he said to me, "We may have to perform vaginoplasty on you. That's complicated surgery. So instead, take home this set of um, I don't think he used the word dildo, but they basically were a set of dildos ranging from small to large, and insert one every day, and then leave it for twenty minutes. And um, yeah, was that painful? Well. I don't know because I didn't do it Good because for you. well I didn't do it because a it was like what the hell I was fourteen and I wasn't even thinking about you know having um, penetrative sex uh, at that particular point um, and my father was in the waiting room so he gave me these in a national health service little very ugly bag to take out but I was just mortified so as soon as I got home I didn't tell my father what was in this bag as soon as I got home I just threw them in the trash oh wow because I just couldn't deal wow. Yeah, I'm I'm actually at a loss for words, and that doesn't happen often. Yeah. Oh goodness. I I wrote all of this into I wrote a play which was in the Son of Semele Festival in Los Angeles called oh. Angels Are Intersex, and um, it was it was the first time I'd really re- revisited those kind of encounters from my childhood, and um, I'm at the laughing stage now because as we know trauma plus time equals comedy. Comedy. Mm-hmm. But when I was writing that play, it was very very painful. I'm sure, um, but it was stuff. probably very healing as well. Very healing, yeah. And, and those who saw it certainly learned a lot. Yes, and it was healing. Yes, and I managed to not kill myself, which was a, a daily battle for, through some of that. But yeah, I'm glad you didn't. Thank you, so am I. Yeah. Oh, you know, I have been in my research, Mm. in my quest to educate myself. I know that right now there seems to be a movement, and rightfully so, where they are trying to get the medical community to stop assigning genders, especially for intersex children. Yes, and more importantly, even than assigning genders, uh, they're trying, and California is leading this, which is one of the reasons I am so proud to be living in California and so grateful to be living in California in Los Angeles, um, is that um, Senator Scott Weiner, um, and that's a great <laughs> Not name. Not Weiner? <laughs> well, perhaps it's pronounced Weiner. <laughs> anyway, a very fantastic senator is leading the charge to create some legislation to prevent doctors from doing surgery on babies and children um, because that surgery is nearly always cosmetic. And of course, once you've done surgery on a child you if they, can't reverse you it. can't reverse it aside from the trauma that you're doing to the kid you then are in a situation that if you've decided the doctor's decided the child is a girl or a boy and operated accordingly you then can't reverse that if the child grows up and decides their gender is different to that i'm actually at a place now where i um i'm living as an out intersex person and i feel like my gender is intersex i really 
I, I look more female and I can be more female. I can play female. Um, I look, I, I look with, with the shorter hair and also I'm growing some stubble at the moment, which is the first time I've let this ever happen. Um, I can look more male as well, but I actually feel like I'm intersex. I feel like I'm neither of the cisgender, uh, cis sexes. I feel like I am actually a synthesis of the two most of the time. So it is an actual gender category. I'm, I'm saying that it should be a recognized gender category and, an, and a recognized sex category. Where does that put your uh, attraction to, to people? Oh, my goodness. It's a good question, isn't it? It's a great question. And it's also um, it's something that's really evolved. I'm living in Los Angeles because I married uh, an L.A. woman. Um, and uh, we were together from 2013 um, and uh, she came and lived with me in England for two years uh, and uh, hated the weather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you didn't know you hated know. it until you came no. here. Well, she thought she was going to like it because she's been through England many times. She managed different bands and people, you know, she's a very well-traveled entrepreneur um, and she thought she was going to like it, but she didn't realize it was going to rain so much. Um, so anyway, fortunately for me, very kindly, she came to live with me in England um, and because I was advising the British government through this thing called the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs and I was very active in doing that and also running my holistic addiction clinic so I felt like I couldn't come to America but I did come here in December 2015 um, and I have now forgotten the question oh who am I attracted to yeah who are you attracted to okay so I was telling you this story because because when you were Sarah when I was Sarah you had beautiful blonde hair beautiful blonde long hair if you go on go on my YouTube oh I don't want to ruin this but I've got to share this oh go on one of I don't want to call it a claim to fame but that is (laughs) what I recognize you for is these this documentary Mm. where you were counseling Yes. Amy Winehouse's father, yes. Mitchell, Mitch, Mitch Winehouse, Mitch Winehouse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and you were completely female with the great big boobies, by the way. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they should get their own show, shouldn't they? Really? And you look completely different now. Yes, I do. Okay, so you were attracted, you, you had your wife at that time? Or? I, that was my first wife. Yeah, I'm, oh. doing, I'm doing really well. I'm, 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 I've just ended my second marriage, or my second marriage has just ended, Um uh, yeah, I, I basically came out as lesbian when I was 17. I fell in love with a woman and I came out as lesbian. And so, but that's a sexuality. That was a sexuality. So you yeah. can be intersex. Yes. And have a sexuality well, that has nothing. It's a gender. So your gender is intersex, but your sexual orientation is lesbianism. Uh, well, this is the thing, you see. I decided when I fell in love with this woman and it was a very profound experience and sexually it was, you know, kind of fly me to the moon kind of experience. And so I decided, oh, I must be lesbian. That's, you know, that's who I am. And at that point I didn't know I was intersex. And actually it was also great because I felt like I was part of the cool gang, you know, the young lesbian gang. I was part of this thing called Green and Common Women's Peace Camp, which was a women-only peace camp around the cruise missile base in um, Berkshire in England. And um, so I felt like I was part this really cool kind of environmental save the world gang and I got into a bit of les- lesbian separatism as well as a teenager and I got into a bit of the, you know the patriarchy and uh, I mean still, still obviously I believe in the patriarchy and what the damage of the patriarchy's done to the world and to women and men and everybody else can you clarify lesbian separatism yeah what sure is it? well just... it, was a, it was a brand of feminism where it's kind of that it's kind of celebrates the female and, and the goddess in us um, but denigrates men 
maleness. Okay. And some call I, it just hating men. Yeah, some call it, yeah. <laughs> just hate the men. Yeah. And, and it's easy to do, isn't yeah. it? Especially with everything that we're, we're all going through in terms of the consciousness raising. It's very easy to fall into blaming men and just pointing the finger. Um, but... And and I kind of went along with that because you it was nice being in that. It was nice being in that gang. And like also also like many women, I'd experienced sexual trauma at the hands of men, men of course, and, which I hadn't healed, and so I was very angry. Um, so that was a convenient kind of political movement to attach myself to. However, and this is why I think again my story is interesting in terms of where we're at as humanity. When I was um, when I when I found out I'm intersex and I found out that you know I'm sort of male as well as female, suddenly the enemy is literally within me, oh my gosh, and so I had right. to, yeah, so I had to go through this massive kind of crisis initially, but then kind of consciousness process of thinking, okay, well, what is it that makes a man a man? What is it that makes a woman a woman? You know, what is it to be human? Can I, you know, who do I belong with? Who do I not belong with? Who am I attracted to? Everything was up for grabs, you know, because for me, being lesbian was kind of a cool thing. You know, it's kind of like a rebellious thing almost. Um, and suddenly I thought, oh, well, perhaps it's just my XY chromosomes and my testes. So really I'm straight, you know, mm -hmm. so this isn't a tool call. I went through all of the different permutations of what does this mean? But the good thing that came out of that was I got to a place where I realized, you know, we're all humans. Um, if we're going to survive as humans on this planet, um, we radically need to shift our consciousness and move away from anger and hatred and heal our trauma and learn to reconnect and become one humanity. Um, this is where we'd go, amen, sister. But yeah. I can't say that to you, can I? <laughs> amen, sister, brother. <laughs> amen, sister, bro. You're my sis, bro. Sis, bro. Oh, oh yeah, sis, bro. Shall I do one of these? I yeah, really we would pound and pound. cause a lot of noise, but that's okay. Okay, <laughs> so you've been with women, mostly, yes. always? Well, I was with women from 17 until um, I came into recovery. When I came into recovery in 2001, I went to rehab and, and I went there for four weeks thinking I'm going to do four weeks rehab, then I'm going to go back to being a television director, go back to my celebrity girlfriend and my big house in London and everything's going to be fine. I just need to address this ad addiction in 28 days. Of course, when I got into rehab, as many people find, um, it was a lot bigger than that. And that part of my addiction was love addiction. Yeah. And um, and that was that was actually more challenging to deal with than the, the uh, addiction to substance. I, I have to interrupt. Love addiction as opposed mm. to sexual addiction. Yes, okay. for me it was you love were, addiction. You were addicted to the heart connections. Yes, okay. yes. Sorry. Uh, that's Go okay. Ahead. No, it's, mm -hmm. it's complicated. It's a good question. Yeah. yeah. I would say I acted out sexually when I was drunk and high because for me my self-worth was so low around my body and my kind of belief that I could be attractive was so low and my fear that I would be rejected was so high that I needed drink and drugs to be able to have sex uh, when I was in my active using. When I came into recovery, A, they said that I needed to leave the relationship I was in because it was a highly addictive relationship, not taking my ex's inventory at all. She was drinking and partying uh, and she could carry on drinking and partying and, you know, and be okay. she's still in the public domain in England and still doing very well. You know, her mm -hmm. life didn't become unmanageable and fall apart in the way that mine did when I called my dealer, um, you know, if I had one drink, who knew where I'd end up in 24 hours? Um, and... Um, so I had to, I had to change things. So um, it took me six months of secondary rehab to be able to leave that relationship and then face the all the feelings that that love addicted relationship was suppressing, which was all of the abandonment from my childhood, all of the kind of 
distrust I had, you know, so many different parts of that kind of toxic mix. All those feelings had to come out, um, w- which were being held in place by being a love addict. Um, and then they said to me, don't have a relationship for a year, as they say to everybody mm-hmm. in England, when you get sober, learn to love yourself before you First, get into another yeah. relationship with they anybody They say else. that here too. Good. Um, I actually didn't have a relationship for two years. Um, I ha- so you showed them. I really You're like, did. what? Yeah. Uh-uh, I I'll do this. two. I don't need this. Yeah. I'm going to be really successful and high functioning and I don't need anybody. But then what I discovered is there's this thing called love avoidance, which is the flip side of love addiction and um, sexual anorexia. That's another good one. If people haven't heard of sexual anorexia, get on Google and Google that one. That's great. I think we can put two and two together. Mm. Some people call that being asexual. Being asexual. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, you just said something very controversial. I did, didn't I? Yes, you did. Yes. Um, so I didn't have a relationship. Anyway, then I date. Then the first person I properly dated um, in sobriety is a friend of mine called Andrew, and I had a relationship with him. And he had a penis. Months. He had a very nice penis. Oh, very nice. Yes, and we had very good sex, and I really liked him a lot, and and we had a good time. I'm getting a visual because you oh shared goodness. the story oh, no. of the doctor giving you the dildos and you not using oh, them. No, yeah. How did Andrew's penis work out? Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're going there. No, we are. Sister bro. <laughs> okay. Sis bro. We didn't have any problems. Nice. No. You know, we didn't have any problems. Okay. It's, am- it's amazing if you want something, what can happen, you know? Right. Your the body hum- will The human heal. body is very adaptable. Yeah. Um, so, no, there were no problems in that department. Then we, and this is interesting because I had a kind of um, foretaste of the future in a way because nobody was really talking about polyamory then. Um, but I can remember there was this woman, well, I say woman, she was about 18, who was really hitting on me in the supermarket. For the first year of my recovery, they said to me, don't go back to television, don't go back to anything glamorous. Nothing public nothing, eye. Nothing public eye, nothing that's going to feed your ego. Do something normal. My therapist used to say to me, you're not going back to London, getting a job there and doing anything that feeds your ego. It doesn't need any I feeling. can't wait to hear what you did that was uh, oh, normal i became a post person delivering mail oh wow yeah you ended up with great legs because you walked a lot (laughs) i was on a bicycle delivering mail oh even better i had to get up at four in the morning be at the sorting office by five sort these letters and that was supposed to take more the people around me were doing it in about two hours you were in the best shape of your life i bet you at the end at the end i was fantastic i was delivering these mails in england in this really hilly town i know these towns all weathers Mm -hmm. all weathers um falling off the bicycle sometimes uh being attacked by dogs everything but it, it got me really fit. It really brought me back down to earth and gave me the value of money. It really kind of was me showing up for my recovery in a huge way. I was about to say that. Kudos. I, I mean, that phone, is showing up in a is. huge way yeah. for yourself. I used to iron my uniform every day as well, which all the other post people found hilarious. That I'd turn up in this crisply ironed uniform. But it, for me, it was like, okay, well, the, the, you know, my ego is taking a battering here, but I'm going to do the best job I can. Unfortunately, because my memory was so messed up from my drinking and drugging, because I started drinking at 12 and drugs at 14, my memory was so fried that it was like Groundhog Day every day. And I was the most useless post person. They were so tolerant of me. They'd get back to the depot about one o'clock and I'd get back there at 3.30 looking like I'd run five marathons. <laughs> I'd 
crawl home, eat a can of soup because that's all I could be bothered to make. And I'd have to go to bed for two hours to recover. And then I'd go to a recovery meeting in the evening. And that was, that was my life for a year. Wow. But it was amazing. And I loved, I loved that early recovery period. Let's I, get back to the salacious portion of the program. <laughs> so after Andrew. I, I, I should have listened to more of this podcast. Oh, I know, I? right? You didn't know this about no, me. No, I didn't. I'm, I like, I'm liking it. I'm uh, liking yeah. it. Yeah. Let's open up. Tell mm. the world. Okay. So Andrew happened. How long did Andrew last? Andrew lasted six months. Andrew said, I said to Andrew, basically, so I was telling you about this woman who was hitting on me in the supermarket and she was very cute. And I just kind of had this realization that um, perhaps I needed more in my life than just dating a guy. You know, I was kind of, this is, this is more of a reflection on me though, in some ways, in the sense that I didn't have sexual self-confidence. I probably couldn't have a conversation around my sexual needs and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm not saying that Andrew was a bad lover. He wasn't at all. Um, and you would know this because. What the, <laughs> well, we'll come to Project Panda in a minute. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, so I said to Andrew, can we open our relationship up? And as I said, this is very progressive thing. Can I open, can we open our relationship up so I can date this woman as well? And initially he was like, yeah, that's fine. But then he realized that he was in love with me and he wasn't comfortable doing that. So we, we ended. And it was sad, but we stayed friends. And then you went back to And then I went women. back to women. And you even married a few. I married a couple, yeah. Do you think you have a few marriages left in you? I've got one left in me. Just one? Yeah. Good grief. Yeah. They say never say never again. And I did have a lot of shame about, um, well, I have had shame about both marriages failing. Neither of them were failures, of course, because we learn so much um, when we commit to life in that way. Um, I learned huge amounts in both relationships. You know, I, I came from a place of not knowing how to have a relationship at all. I didn't have a relationship myself. How can I have a relationship with somebody else? Um, you know, both of those marriages brought up huge issues that I had to work through. And I was gifted with two people who were both great people to teach me those lessons in various ways. Um, but I also had to realize that um, I didn't actually love myself, you know, despite having done so much rehab and so much therapy and so many affirmations, millions of affirmations, all of the stuff that you we do. You did the work. I did the you work. went there. I went there, but I found that I still didn't really love myself. And that took having a physical healing crisis and being forced to try testosterone shots and also writing my play Angels Are Intersex. Okay. Go on. Testosterone shots. Yes. What... What was that about? Um, because my body rejected estrogen. So my body was literally rejecting estrogen. I was taking the same amount every day and they did my blood test and it, there was no estrogen in my body. My body was literally rejecting washing, it. washing the estrogen out of my so system. So doctors said, okay, no estrogen, testosterone is the way to go. The, do the doctor I had, Dr. Angie at the LA LGBT Center, and I have to give them a shout out because yes. I literally owe them my life. If I had, I've been so terrified of going to doctors, as you can imagine from what happened to me as a kid. I put off going to the doctor for nine months, even though I was getting more and more physically disabled and take, having to take ibuprofen every day and put on, you know, pain relieving gel and all that kind of stuff onto my ankles because my ankles were packing up. Finally, after nine months, I went to see Dr. Angie and um, they, they, would, it's just such a beautiful environment to be in as a queer person. I love that place. Oh my yeah. God, it's so good. I visit good. it often. Yeah. And, um, and I felt so at home and so um, relaxed being there. And, I, and it's the first positive medical experience I've ever had. I really did. And Dr. Angie basically said to me, look, you were born with testes. Your body would have produced testosterone. Why don't we give it a, give it a shot, literally? You know, y y your body's not in great shape right now. 
try testosterone shots and in theory I'm completely immune to the effects of testosterone that's what I've been told um so I thought okay well let's do this gave me my first testosterone shot I felt substantially better wow. very quickly it was like I was suddenly being put on the like fuel like a shot of vitamin B12 probably yes like if you're yes. balance yeah um it was it was even more than that though in the sense it was like my whole life I'd been running on the wrong fuel and mm. I didn't realize until I had that testosterone shot that when they did that operation on me, something was really lost in terms of a part of myself, you know, the kind of my male energy, whatever it was, but something was lost. And I didn't feel like myself from that operation on. With testosterone in my system, suddenly I felt like the kid that I was prior, prior to, to the operation. Yeah. yeah, so it's been a very rapid healing process since I started testosterone about eight or nine months ago now. What changes have you noticed in your body? Um, I, I'm changing shape. You know, I I always ate healthy, especially since I got to Los Angeles. I ate super healthy, but I always was heavy set. Um, I always just felt sluggish. Um, my body is changing in the, in the the f the fat is melting off me. Um, my body's kind of um, so you've lost weight. I've lost I've lost quite a lot of weight. Yeah, oh. um, and um, your breasts have not gotten smaller though. They got slightly bigger. They did. They did. I think that's what I need. Do I need testosterone? <laughs> I'd love to have bigger boobs. <laughs> and then. Uh, my clitoris started getting bigger. Oh dear! I know. Well, is it going to become like a hanging labia or like no. a penis? What's going to happen? It's um, <clears throat> again. This is one of those things. If you're ha if you're in a good space about your self worth, and if you're in a kind of open minded hell, you know, we've just in this one life. You know, this just is it. Acceptance is the key, as it says in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you're looking for the gifts, gifts in every situation rather than going into fear, um, yeah, it just started growing. It's got bigger. Um, I call it. Um, I just read an article in Salty Magazine. Um, what is it called? Saucy Magazine? Salty oh, Magazine. Oh, Salty. Is that an American publication? It's an American online publication. It's fantastic. The woman who's editing this, it's queer, people of color, women, um, uh, kink, uh, sexuality, online. honest online uh, publication. She it's needs brilliant. to sponsor this episode then because well, you just she gave needs, her a killer Pot, uh, uh, you know shout what? Out. She actually needs sponsorship because she's creating something. Oh, really she needs sponsorship. Yeah, she does. No, she really does because yeah. she's got this brand, and it's it's a it's a really growing brand online. It's doing something really original, and it's really giving people the courage to write their truth in a way that hasn't been written previously. You know, I only wrote this article, and the headline for this article is "I love my massive clit," and so. Oh. And so do many other people. That could be a great one-woman show, by the way. <laughs> I know. One-person show. A one-person show. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you for the correction. <laughs> no, okay. I was thinking of myself, by the way. Oh, Shouting, okay. I love my massive clip. Not well, that I have a massive clip, but... <laughs> well, the end of my comedy set... I actually get the audience to chant clitoris, clitoris, clitoris. It's like because, staccato. I yeah, like yeah, it. Yeah, like a football chant. Yeah. Because I say in my stand-up, the, 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 the real C word isn't... Cunt. Mm -hmm, the real C word is clitoris. True. Even though 50% of the population have got one, even though it's the most perfect human organ in terms of it's the only one that's purely for sex and, you know, fun... It's the least spoken about word. And, and in so fact, it's an insult. It's an insult, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, that's why I'm trying to break through, especially in America. I really, you guys oh. are so lovely and such beautiful people, but you have such weird shynesses like saying oh, bathroom. Yeah, or vagina. Yeah, or, anything. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so I know Eminem got there first, but I'm I, I, on at the comedy store 
I love taking the audience down that path, which ends with them chanting clitoris, much to their own amazement. I mean, listen, I hang out with a group of Irishmen, and they all call each other cunts. I know. You know, and here it's like the worst insult to call a woman. Oh, I know. Which, you know, we have our differences for sure. Uh, before we wrap this up, okay. I really want to answer. I want to ask you this. Mm-hmm. Your emotional life as a result of the shifts that have occurred, what's it like? In other words, I hear a, an, an overproduction of estrogen makes you highly emotional. Mm-hmm. And testosterone somehow inhibits that. Mm-hmm. Are you more sensitive, less sensitive? Have you noticed, have you paid attention to any? Oh, of, that? of course, yeah. So what's Absolutely. happening? So three or four days after I had my first tee shot, I wrote Project Panda um, on OkCupid. Okay and it's kind of like a Jerry Maguire-esque essay, treatise about my sexuality and my identity and my desire to work through the fuck it list of all the things which I haven't done at the advanced age of 49 I was when I wrote it. Um, and looking back, I didn't realize, but it was just a matter of days after that first tee shot. Tee shots, testosterone is like kind of, it's really powerful, you know? It's given me so much more compassion for men to be kind of attached to that particular sexual equipment, creating testosterone. It's its like nuclear fuel. How, what, what's it feel like? What is well, it? what it feels like is I feel like I my emo- emotionally and physically I was much more female before going on T-shots. Okay. And I feel that then sexua- my sexuality was very much tied in with my emotions and all of the things which we know about women. Um, and sex was much more of a choice thing, you know, and I'd have to kind of work up to it and be in the right place and have the connection and all of that stuff, all of which is beautiful. I'm not in any way attacking female sexuality or anything. And actually, I think women are a lot more sexual than we realize. I think patriarchy has done everybody a disservice by repressing women's sexuality. And we're just starting to see women rise up and own their sexuality in really beautiful ways. However, testosterone for me, my experience of it is it's made sex much more of a drive like food and water, Mm. like I would not go for, you know, very long without having a drink. I would not go for very long without having food. Um, and, you know, I need to have sex in a way that I didn't used to need to have sex. Wow. Yeah. So is that why men are so sexually driven? It's part of it, definitely. I mean, you know, I've got the testosterone. Obviously, I also haven't got the the physical desire to, I think this expression is such a horrible expression, but I'm going to say it anyway, yeah. empty the tanks. You know, men... <laughs> Men do need milking. Have you to got put it another way? <laughs> Men need milking. What Men a great milking. visual. I know that's a good that's a good title. That's for an, it's a very clean way I'm, of saying I'm masturbation. Writing that in my, I'm writing down. that in my comedy back in my comedy list just in case any other creative people out there are about to steal it. Men need milking. They do though. Um so my Project Panda on OKCupid okay has been, I mean, partly I wrote it, obviously, because I want to work through my own sexuality and my, and I'm deliberately dating people across the whole spectrum of human possibility, like literally. I'm open to going on a date with people from any walk of life, any physicality, any background, any age, obviously within. Well, don't you have to be attracted to them? Though? Well, this is the thing. I'm even breaking that down because oh. I'm even looking at what is it that makes an attraction to somebody? Hmm. You know, and realizing I'm also looking at how much my conditioning as a as a white English person raised as a woman 
um, you know, who's had certain beliefs about what they would find attractive. How much of that's true? How much of who I find attractive has come from Hollywood, for example? We're in Hollywood. You know, I moved to Hollywood to get intersex stories told by this town because we're, we're as common as red hair and green eyes, but there's no intersex characters in anything mainstream. There's not a single famous intersex person in the world yet. Well, in the show Pose, they have one, but that's a whole different... That just started. That just started, yeah. And that started since I moved here, but yes... We love the pose, big up the pose. Um, but yeah, we need so many, uh, and there's so many varieties of intersex stories. Um, and I've So now you're open to dating all and everything. And I have everyone. been. It's Operation Pan- Project Panda has been going for about nine months. I'm looking to create a, um, I'm looking to find seven lovers who I'm calling the Magnificent Seven. And then I'm going to run Project Panda for three months. Uh, as an anthropology participant observer exercise, uh, part physical training program, get fit through fucking. Um, that's a, another book idea that they're right there. You can Did see you write pu- that down? publishers are reaching for their pens, get fit through fucking. Or alternative title, if you don't like that, get fucking fit. That works too. That works even better. That does. I think I might have to self publish. The alliteration that. Oh, is, I love it. is fantastic. Um, Listen, mm. we need to wrap this up because we can go on and on and on, can't we? We probably this is can. Fascinating. But we're going to get to hear more about you in this time. We're going to focus on your work as an addiction counselor. And I'm really hoping that that episode will help a lot of people. So until we meet again, I want to say to you, Seven Graham, happy milking. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and that's it, listeners. Please give us a rating. Um, I will put all of uh, Seven's social media Mm -hmm. that he, she, they, they, I did that on purpose just to give you a last opportunity to correct (laughs) me. Uh, Information will be there. Until we meet again, bye. Bye.